Well, please turn to Acts 17, verse 10 through 15. That'll be our passage today. We're continuing our series on the church and diaspora. We've been learning lessons from the New Testament church, and we're trying to draw those lessons to our context here in Los Angeles, in Southern California, the nation, and even the world. I say the world because we have sent out missionaries from our church. Uh, Right now, we even have uh, a new believer, a new baptized believer. She's getting baptized today, and she's doing ministry in a closed country through the media. Um, Pretty soon, we're going to be having a mission Sunday, so stay tuned to that. So um, our humble church has a heart for a God-sized mission across the world. Well, when you look in the back of your Bibles, a lot of times you'll see maps. And we're looking at Paul's missionary journey, the second one to be specific. Why are there maps in our Bible? Because these are real places of real events in history. And you'll see that Paul has trekked across the Mediterranean world, stopping and planting churches and preaching the gospel in different places. And we've been learning lessons from each one. Because uh, the lessons we learn is universal. You see, the mission Paul has and the God Paul has is the same God that leads us. And the mission we have is the same mission as Paul. It also follows that the enemy of Paul and the way the enemy harassed Paul might be the way that he hates us. The enemy hates City Bible Church. He hates our mission. And so it's really important that we learn lessons how to have a strong defense against the enemy through reading the scriptures. And we're going to learn that today. So let's learn from these spiritual dynamics. Let me review really quick. From the church in Judea and Samaria, we learned the importance of staying on mission. What mission? The importance of being witnesses to a lost and dying world, regardless of the chaos around us. How have you been, church? Have you been staying on mission? From the church of Macedonia, we learned that the life of a Christian is one of movement and of change. It's not one of stagnancy. It's not one of laziness. The Spirit leads us and we follow Good Christian, let me ask you, is your life characterized by one of change, movement with the Holy Spirit, or is your life characterized by stagnancy? From the Church of Philippi, we learn that when we do stay on God's mission, there's a lot of blessing. There's a lot of new believers. Like today, we have new baptisms, new life. It's a blessing, and many lives are changed. But when we're on mission, we also encounter the enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy souls. He wants to distract us and hinder us. And so we have to be warriors in the prayer realm. Church, are you praying? Is your life characterized by prayer? And then last week in Thessalonica, Pastor Chris talked about the importance of preaching Christ's resurrection. His death death on the cross and his resurrection, Paul argued with the Thessalonians. Are you able to do the same with your unsafe friends and family members? It's a real challenge. And in all those different cities, what we find is that the enemy of Christ, Satan, drove Paul out through persecution. Drove him out of Macedonia, drove him out of Philippi, drove him out of Thessalonica. And 45 miles south is Berea. And that's where we are today. Wherever Paul preached, his message of the gospel was the fragrance of life or the stench of death. 
Whenever the gospel is preached, there's a decision for the hearer. And there's no middle ground. And so we have to be ready because some of our listeners are going to respond to the gospel and be saved and be baptized. Praise God. There's new life in this church. But we will also encounter resistance. And as a shepherd and as an overseer and as a father of sorts in the church, I feel compelled to exhort you to be like a Berean and to study the word. So today, the name of my message is the Berean defense. The Berean defense. What is the Berean defense? Okay, I'm going the uh, alliteration route. Three E's. Okay, you can write it down, but we'll get into it more later. But eagerness. Do you have eagerness to receive the word of God from the preacher or from the scriptures directly? Second, examination. The second E is examination. Do you cross-check what you hear? You hear a new book, you hear a preacher, and do you just receive it passively, or do you go home and you double-check and check the scriptures to make sure what you're being taught is scriptural and sound and by the Holy Spirit? And then once you verify the message, do you make life changes? Because if the message of the gospel or the word of God is preached, and you verify that it is from the Holy Spirit, when God himself is speaking to you through his word, it's not through a human. If the preacher is aligned with the scripture, it's as if I'm functioning, or Pastor Chris, or Garen, or Norm, or whoever is functioning like an oracle of God. And if you verify through the word of God that he's speaking to you, are you going to make a decision? Are you going to engage? Are you going to change? Or are you going to sit there and just let it bounce off you? It's a challenge for all of us. I'm preaching to myself as well. Let me give you a natural parallel before we really jump into it. You know, during this pandemic, um, we're all getting tired of talking about it, but we're in it. And even last week, I talked to some old friends um, and heard of friends of friends who who passed away from this pandemic. So it's troubling. But in the beginning, you you remember last year, we got so much information, so many spokespeople, medical people, politicians, governors, local officials, federal officials, and a lot of talking heads on TV. We need to make good decisions. I have young children in my family. I have a whole class of students under my care. I have elderly parents. Just like you, I have to make decisions. I I have to take in all this information. I took in all the information about the pandemic with eagerness, because it's important. And so I studied. And then I realized that not everybody is telling the full truth. And we have to have a critical mind. Even if 95% of the people, or the tweets, or the news stories, it's probably lower than that, but even if 95% is accurate, that 5%, if you listen to it without a critical mind, without discernment of God, you could make a decision that could really harm and hurt your family. So we do this in the natural realm, don't we? We take in information. We don't trust everything, but we cross-check. We do our own study, and then we come to a decision. Well, the same is true in the spiritual realm. We eagerly listen to the preacher, and we receive the word of God. But then we go home, and then we check the scriptures to see if it's true, like the Bereans. Finally, we engage in what is being taught. And we engage in God's mission. But when we do that, and this is the warning, we also engage in spiritual battle. We engage our enemy, the devil. And he wants to still kill and destroy our soul. 
And the one weapon that we have, we'll look at it later in the armor of God, is the sword, which is the word of God. That's our weapon. We're not like Captain America. We're not whacking people with a shield and we have no sword. If we're on the battlefield without a sword, we don't have a weapon. We need the sword. The devil doesn't want you to wield the sword. He is afraid of the sword. He is afraid of the word of God. That's why he doesn't want you in your scriptures. He doesn't want you to be like a Berean. That's why he twists the scripture. And so later on, after I talk about the Berean defense, eagerness, examination, and engagement, after I teach you that, I'm going to tell you three common ways that the devil attacks by twisting scripture. It's as old as the garden. In Genesis 3, the first sin, he said to Eve, did God really see? Really say? He brings in doubt because he knows that she's not being careful about what the word of God said to her, what the caution the word of God said to her. And he doesn't just say directly contradicting God. He just twists it. Did he really say that? Hmm. Our enemy is cunning. He's been at it for thousands of years. He knows your weak spots. But today, through the Berean defense, you'll be able to wield the sword and be effective for the mission that God has us on. So with that being said, let's read today's scripture. Acts 17, verse 10 through 15. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command from Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Let's pray. Jesus, wow, it's so important for us to know the word of God. Lord, I confess, sometimes I'm so lazy about it. I treat the word of God so commonplace. I come to church and sometimes it's an empty ritual. I know it's not, but sometimes I treat it as such. Lord, help us to have the intensity and the hunger of the Bereans for the scriptures, for the word of God. For those of us who are older Christians, we might have lost our first love. Give us a fire and a hunger for the word of God. Let us be good stewards in have discernment and examine the word of God and let us engage in your mission, reaching the lost for Christ. Help us, God, to have eyes to see in the spiritual realm. Equip us with your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this uh, passage is pretty straightforward. You can see at the beginning, verse 10, um, what has happened is Paul and Silas has been kicked out of Thessalonica. Some of the, the Jews there, the Jewish leaders, are jealous and they want to kill the the messenger, they want to kill the mission, and they drive Paul and Silas out, and they escape by night. They go down to Berea, so from like the Gems parking lot, it would be like traveling to Newport Beach, like 45 miles approximately. So they take a couple days, and as soon as Paul gets to Berea, he doesn't waste time because he's on mission, 
but empowered by the Holy Spirit, he starts in the Jewish synagogue. That's his habit. And then he preaches, just like last week. He starts to reason with them, explaining how the Messiah had to come, suffer and die, to take away the sins of the world. He died on the cross. He rose on the third day, giving us hope of life after death. And that Jesus, in fact, was the Messiah. That's his message. And that we need to have belief in him. So that's what Paul does. And he cares for his countrymen, the Jews. But you can see here, Luke puts it so eloquently, he also reaches not just Jews, but Greeks, people who are not Jewish, and not just men, but women, too. And so the gospel is for everyone, regardless of whether you have any Christian background or not. The Greeks didn't have a shared understanding of the Old Testament scriptures. And then what Paul and Silas don't know in the natural is they only have a short time here because the mob is coming. 45 miles, that's dedication. That's hatred. That's empowered by the evil one. And so you can see with the Bereans, they have a certain intensity. The Holy Spirit knew that these people will have to ingest the word of God quickly, cross-check it with the scriptures, and then apply it to their lives. And we know they do because in Acts 20, we see a Greek believer named Sopitar, who is fruit of this movement, he joins Paul and they go to Macedonia as missionaries together. But what we're going to camp out in is as we look at the Berean defense, I want to look at the three E's again. Number one is eagerness. Number two is examination. And number three is engagement. I would encourage you to memorize verse 11 and 12. Let's look at it. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness. We'll pause there. They receive with eagerness. Now, a lot of you are teachers, your leaders, your bosses. And one thing that's really hard to teach that everyone wants is hunger. You want those under you. You want students to have hunger. Uh, I've been a teacher for a long time. I'm a professor now. And one thing I want in all of my students or what I really, what's a joy to teach is someone with hunger and eagerness. I was talking to my friend who works for Blizzard. It's a big um, gaming company. And I was talking to him. He gets a lot of, he was one of the early founders. He gets a bunch of books. You know, people give them their, his, their art books and so on. And he told me this, I'll take hunger over talent any day. Of course, it's good to have both, but it's hard to teach hunger. You want someone who is hungry. And as a teacher, I've had different kinds of students, and you can't really stereotype them all, but I have taught a lot of refugees. Not a lot, but a fair amount. I've, I've taught people from the Sudan whose parents were killed, lost boys, lost girls. I taught students that came from Cuba that they literally floated over on a little raft. I've taught um, an Ethiopian kid that was um, had a disfiguration and he needed medical help and he was at Mother Teresa's orphanage and uh, he came through the grace of God, other kids from the Congo and uh, not all the students but many of them who only come and the, the paper and the pencil have been donated and the only thing they have more or less is the clothes on their backs. When I'm teaching them English or study skills or research they are taking copious notes. Not all of them, but many of them. 
Why? Because they know that in many ways their lives depend on it. They have hunger, their eagerness. You say something, they're writing everything down. Our friend Robert is being baptized today as a new believer from a certain Asian country where the gospel is not allowed. I wish I could show you his notebook. Everything I teach him, he writes down and he translates. And you can see in his language, all of my teaching, everything I teach him. What do you, it's just, it's a joy to see. And then he's applying it. He's, he's ministering to his friends who don't know the gospel already. It's amazing. But I had this one student named Shamso, and she's an example. She was from Somalia. She was 19 years old. The people in that class had post-traumatic stress disorder. They came over. Um, a lot of the family members killed. Taught her to write and read in English. Six months later, after the course, she calls me up. And she says, teacher. I, and she, she, she has her good English. She says, teacher, I just got a job at McDonald's. I'm working at McDonald's, and I'm going to community college. Her life was changed. But on the converse, I've also had students from very wealthy countries. I've had a lot of students from oil money from the Middle East. They have really nice cars. And um, I've had other students that were Asian princes and, and princesses, people from royal families. In my line of work, I run into that once in a while. And I had this one kid who came from money. And I was a little embarrassed. One day he parked next to me with his car. And his car is... <laughs> pushing $100,000. He came from big money, and I was a little ashamed of my car next to his. But he was a nice kid. I really liked him, but he had no hunger. He had no earnestness. He didn't do his homework. He didn't study hard. He was always bored. He went home, kind of in disgrace, but, you know, mommy and daddy took care of him. He had to reflect on it. Five years later, he's back in my class, and he's telling me all the wonderful things he's going to do. This time, I'm going to really get my master's degree. I'm going to do this, going to do that. Same pattern, and he's gone. Leaves in disgrace. Why? No earnestness, no eagerness to learn. Let me ask you, friends, especially those of you who've been in the church a while, are you eager to learn, or is it just commonplace? Because if you're not on mission, if you don't look at Acts 1-8 and say that when Jesus says he wants us to be his witnesses throughout the world, the unbelieving world, and if you're not really part of that, you might say you are, you might hang around with people, but you're not really engaged with people who are lost, maybe you don't really need to study this stuff out. You do for your own sake, but once you start engaging in the mission of God, you're going to get a lot of counter-arguments. You're going to have a lot of questions, and you don't need to know all the answers, but you need to be like the Bereans and study it out. And that leads to my second point, examining, examining. Oh, before examining, I, I do want to mention one thing. Um, Mushin, who's getting baptized today, um, she talked to me about a woman from China who is a countryside woman. She was a peasant and didn't um, have formal education, so she couldn't read. But she had a broadcast, a radio broadcast, where she heard the word of God. And wouldn't you know, she had that earnestness and the eagerness to learn, and she memorized the whole Bible minus a few words and genealogies. Just a few names she can't do, but she memorized the rest. Uh, another, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I jumped ahead of myself, but with eagerness in the spiritual realm, when I was in Bible school, I heard in the Middle East, um, 
I've been to the Middle East on missions trip, and there were some pastors that I was aware of who it was illegal for them to have Bibles. It was difficult to get, and so they memorized the entire Bible. And this Western missionary goes over, actually um, seminary professor, you know, the Western guys go over to train up these Middle Eastern pastors. Well, the Western seminary professor opens up his Bible and says, turn to like Acts 16. Well, these Middle Eastern pastors, they don't look down. They just turn there in their mind. They're already there. Acts 17. Isn't that incredible? Let me tell you something. The Holy Spirit, and it puts me to shame too, if you feel that way. Because I have my little index cards and I try to memorize stuff. But the point is, is that the Holy Spirit helped the peasant woman, helped the Middle Eastern pastors, and it'll help you and help me in the time when we need it. But we need to have that eagerness. Okay, next is examining the scriptures daily. Okay, so the next E is examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. We have to understand that even if 95% of the messages and the doctrines that were taught are accurate, it doesn't mean they all are. And we need to have the habit to cross-check everything. Besides, we're meant to be the teachers for our family. We need to train up our kids if you're married with kids or if you just have kids or your friends or your roommates. God is going to put you in a position or your coworkers where you're going to be the spiritual head over a group and you need to teach them. You can't just outsource to the pastor. You need to be teaching your own people. So you need to have a certain level of copiousness means you are thorough in your study and you hear a message and you take the notes or you write in your margins or you highlight and then you're able to impart that to someone else. That's what Robert's doing. He and I, we study the book of John together, chapter by chapter. We're in John 3 right now. He's going to be teaching his friend John 1. So we are in community together. I'm training up Robert. He's studying the word of God with intensity like a Berean and then he's teaching it. They're going to ask him tough questions. So what happens? Robert comes back to me and we reason together and he goes back. That is what we want in this church. We need to be in community with people who are not saved. We need to reach them, share the gospel and be willing to teach the Bible. And I will give you some ideas for some investigative Bible studies. In the first century, heresy has always been a tactic of the enemy to try to bring division and confusion to the church. It was true then, it's true now. For example, the book of Galatians was in part a letter from Paul in order to rebut against those who said, in order to be saved, you have to follow Jewish ceremonial laws. And so the book of Galatians was to refute heresy. You look at 1 Corinthians, some people were saying that Jesus rose spiritually but not physically. 1 Corinthians is important that. The book of John is important, talking about Thomas touching the nail scars. Because even the Jehovah Witnesses, cults today, will say, oh, Jesus rose spiritually but not physically. It's important. His physical resurrection is the hope that there's life after death. He physically rose from the dead. That's important. That's crucial. Okay, getting... um, More with examination. Um, It says here in verse 11, 
examining the scriptures daily. Let me talk about daily for a minute. What's your daily habit? I'm not the greatest Bible reader, but I do read the proverb of the day pretty much every day. First thing I do, I get up and then I read the proverb. Now, Proverbs is a book of wisdom. It was written by Solomon. Solomon was like a combination of Bill Gates and Ozzy Osbourne. He was like a, he was the richest king. He was the wisest king, wisest person in the Bible is what the scripture said. He was inspired by the Holy Spirit, but he also had a lot of hedonistic lifestyle. He used to build big castles and palaces for himself. He was a great architect. He also had 700 wives and 300 concubines. He dabbled in the occult. He did it all. And now he's an old man and he's, he's kind of like talking to his grandkids and saying, look, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's like, look, here's the path that leads to righteousness and life. Here's the path that leads to foolishness and death. I love Proverbs. And for all you uh, younger people like we have in our church who are early in their careers, early in life, and they're trying to find the trajectory of life, or an old guy like me, I needed to. Proverbs is so key. It's talking about the importance of diligence, the importance of following the Lord, the importance of not falling into sin, into seduction. And because each day, we don't know what the day brings. Do you understand that? Like, let me just tell you a couple days that I didn't expect. And so by reading the scriptures daily, I don't know when I'm going to need it. Of course, I need it every day. The word of God says it's our nourishment. It's our spiritual nourishment. We can't starve without it. But one day I was um, just a normal day. It was a Sunday afternoon and I hear gunshots in front of my house. For some of you who visited my house, it's where you park before you come in the house. There's gang members out of their car shooting at another car going by. My kids are around me. What do you do in the moment? What is your emotion? Is it fearful? How do you respond? One time I was uh, parking. I used to live in a pretty tough area in San Bernardino. And I, it was a day of teaching. I came home. I was just relaxing, turn off the car. My door flies open and someone says, get the blank out of the car in a threatening voice. You don't know how you're going to respond until that moment. Um, just a couple of years ago, I was teaching a class and then I heard an announcement that there was a shooter in the adjacent building alive. And, and I am responsible for all the students under me. And a lot of them were afraid. You don't know how you're going to respond. But like in Proverbs, the righteous are as bold as a lion. And there's all sorts of Psalms about calm and peacefulness. And so by God's grace, I had peace in all those situations. I had calm in those situations because of my own resources, because of God, because of his word that was in me. I'm kind of a hothead, if you know me. And so sometimes my temptation would be to get involved when I shouldn't. But then I always remember the proverb that if you get into a quarrel that's not your own, it's like grabbing a dog by the ears. So I'm not saying you should never get involved in a third party encounter. But scripture says you should be careful about that. One time I was in, uh, you know, I was teaching in Japan. I was walking home and I was lost and I was walking in the wrong side of town. And wouldn't you know, I'm trying to find the, the train station and I walk right by a brothel. It was late at night and uh, the madame comes out and says, come on in. And it's like the seductress woman saying, come on in. Now I teach my kids. I say, it's normal when you see the billboard when you have this invitation to feel temptation, be tempted, but do not sin. That's a human response. 
Another time when I was in China, I was staying at a hotel. I'm married at this time. I'm a church leader. I'm a Christian. I'm a professor. Who cares? In a moment of weakness, after you have jet lag and you're trying to just go to your hotel room and some guy says, hey, you want blank? At that moment, the enemy is trying to set you up for a big fall. And it happens. One of my seminary professors, he fell into sexual immorality. One of my pastors who got me into missions, he fell in sexual immorality. One of my roommates and and best friends was a missionary, a great evangelist. He fell into sexual immorality on the mission field. Our enemy is cunning. And unless we have the word of God in us on a regular basis, like the Bereans, that we study intently, eagerly, and then we, we read the scriptures. In that moment, I thought of Proverbs 7. It says, hey, the adulterous woman leads to death. Many strong men were brought to hell through her. And then I thought of Joseph, who just ran away from Potiphar's wife. Just run away. And that's what I did. I just got out of there. I said a few words in Chinese, a little crass, but I got out of there. And, and that's important. I want to bring you to the last verse, the last E. So we've looked at eagerness. We looked at examining daily, okay, daily scriptures. And now we're going to look at engagement. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned, sorry, verse, um, excuse me, verse 12, many of them therefore believed. And so now we get to the word therefore. Therefore means there's a couple of premises. So they eagerly receive then they examine the scriptures and then they believe. And what do they do? They are part of the mission. They hide Paul. They don't hand over Paul to the mob of the Thessalonians. They become part of the movement. Some of us, we hear the word of God. We feel confronted by the Holy Spirit of an idol he wants us to give up or a sin he wants us to give up or he has a call he wants us a door to go through. And then we wait. But, you know, when you decide or you don't decide and you stay in the fence, it's a decision to say no to God. When you stay in the fence and you refuse to make a decision, it's a decision of no. And the Bereans, when they confronted the word of God and they understand that the word of God is compelling them to do something, they engage. That leads to the last part. So those are the big three. Eagerness, examination, and engagement. But when we engage in God's mission, when we say, yes, I'm going to be part of what God's doing, I'm going to reach the lost for Christ, I'm going to be his witness, the enemy is not happy. And I want to remind you of Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6, verse 11 and 12 Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Let's skip to 15. And we have the shoes with the readiness of the gospel. So bringing the gospel brings you onto the battlefield. But what is our weapon? Verse 17, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. What we have in battle is the sword, is the word of God. 
And my question to you, um, friends, is where's your sword? Is it just over the fireplace? Is it just decoration gathering dust? Or if you were to show me your sword, it would have nicks all over it from battle. It would have scratches. It would, ha- it would be bloodstained. The, the grip would match the contours of your fingers because it's been in your hand. In David's mighty men in the Old Testament, it says that one man, he was in a battle and his hand was frozen to his sword because he was so dependent when he killed so many men in battle. When we go to battle against Satan, when we go to battle, we must have the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We must have copious biblical literacy, not to be a scholar, but just for our own lives. That peasant woman is like a PhD postdoc. She knows the word of God much better than me. Who cares about degrees on the wall? She's spiritually mature. She understands the sword. She has it. She's, she's killed many foes in the spiritual realm. So really quick, I want to tell you three quick strategies that the devil uses against us. Okay, so when the devil, you know, he, he did the same thing against Christ. What did he do when he tempted Christ in Matthew? He says he quotes scripture, but he twists it to his own ends. And he does the same thing. He has the same tricks he did against Jesus, same tricks against Eve and Adam. He uses the same tricks against us. So I'm going to tell you the three tricks, three common tricks. Number one, and they all have names related to animals. The first one is the slug attack. Sluggard. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Learn from them and be wise. They have no master, no boss but they're always working diligently. And in the spiritual realm, they're always studying diligently. I went by the field of a lazy man and I noticed and learned from it. The, there was weeds growing up and the, and the wall was broken down. What does that mean? That means that the defenses are down and you're just ripe for destruction. And we're like that spiritually. Sometimes our defenses are down. Think about, um, um, no one gets married. I'm all fired up. No one on their wedding day says, hey, I love you, I'm going to kiss you now, and I'm going to divorce you in seven years. No one says that, but that happens. How does it happen? It's usually not from one acute event. Usually it's a slow decay. Words decay. Laziness happens. There's not the effort. There's not the eagerness and the earnestness. There's not the checking of self. And in the spiritual realm, we're the bride of Christ. God wants us to prepare ourselves for him, but in many ways we're so lazy and so we make ourselves vulnerable. And if you're not involved in the battle, if you're not involved in the mission, the devil might just leave you alone. You can just be sitting there. But remember the warning in Matthew. Many will say on that that day, I did this in your name and that in your name means I think I'm a Christian. And Jesus will say, I don't even know who you are. The second attack. So the first one is the slug, sluggard. He just wants to lull you to sleep wants to give you the cares of the world, wants you to overdose on stupid sports and Netflix, wants you to be lazy, wants you to be a glutton, stop going to church, stop meeting, give up meeting together. That's the sluggard attack. The second attack is what I call the Trojan horse attack. That's when heresy is smuggled in in Christian language. It happens all the time. You have some preacher talking about your best life now. They write a whole book about being a Christian and what real Christian living is in this life. And they don't even say the word cross. It's totally antithetical to the gospel. You have some other false teacher out there who's talking about, hey, you know what? Hell isn't even real. 
you have the Mormon missionary come to your door and they say, hey, do you want your whole family to go to heaven? He knows that people have some respect for the Bible. And so what they'll do is they will open up your scriptures and like the devil, they'll twist it and then quote out of context and say, this is talking about Joseph Smith. Let me introduce you to a new gospel, a new book. I'm sorry if I'm being too direct about it. But everything I'm telling you is true. The cults do this. John, and how do you counter this? You know, one cult says, I mean, the Jehovah Witnesses says, uh, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was a God. Jesus is a created being. No, you have to look in John 1, 1 and bring the truth there. What if the person you're talking to says, Jesus never claimed to be God. Find me the verse where Jesus says, I am God. Where are you going to go, Christian? Find the verse. Uh, John 10. I and the Father are one. Jesus equated himself with the Father, and the Jews around him killed him for blasphemy because he, being a man, made himself to be as God. That's where it is. Jesus never claimed to be the only way to God. John 14, 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm not saying you need to know all the answers. I just am saying when you have the question, have the Berean diligence to go and examine. That's all. And the last attack that the devil uses is called the frog in the pot attack. Okay, that was hard. All right, so you have a pot of boiling water and you have a frog and you throw the frog in the pot. I know it's cruel. My dad used to hunt frogs, shoot them up and cook them up. He's French. He can do that. It's okay. But anyway, if you take a frog and you throw it in the pot, it'll land in the boiling water and just jump out. However, if you take a live frog and you put it in lukewarm water and then you turn the heat up slowly, they'll just stay there until they cook to death. We as Christians in this culture are often like that, is that the culture, the postmodern culture around us where that says that, you know, what's true for you is true for you. and What's true for me is true for me. That relativistic truth that Jesus is a way, but not the only way. We encounter this. People who say that teaching of Romans is going to be hate speech. Um, Elton John, who says that Jesus was gay. I mean, that's, is that really who Jesus is? Maybe Elton John's Jesus is, but not the God of Scripture. How do you counter that? What do you do with someone like Matthew Vines, who writes a book? He's a Harvard graduate, and he writes a book and says that, you know, being gay and Christian is acceptable. Look in the Old Testament. It says not to eat shellfish. Don't eat lobster. And then right next to it says don't be participating in gay behavior. So, Christian, you eat lobster, therefore homosexuality is okay. How do you counter that? There's plenty of counters. You have to look at the Word of God, but you need to study it out. Study out the Word of God. Because when you don't, and we love everyone, anyone from that community, someone asked me what I think about that, and I said, look, I believe God made them male and female, but I also know that every person has the Imago Dei in them. And Jesus died and bled on the cross for every person. That is the value of each individual. So regardless of how you self-identify, God loves you all. But those are three common attacks. The slug attack, the Trojan horse attack, and the last one, frog in the pot attack. Those are the ways the enemy is trying to attack the church. That's how he's trying to attack our church. The only defense against those three attacks is the Berean defense and eagerness to hear the word of God and to have hunger to learn the word of God. And then the examination, 
the copiousness, the study. The Bereans would have to go to the temple and take out the scrolls and study and then talk about it and then do their jobs. They had to have effort to study the word of God. They made it important in their days. And the last is once you hear a message like this, you might be all stirred up and you might be feeling convicted. Well, what are you going to do? Sit on the fence? No, we need to change. We need to ask the Holy Spirit to empower us to do what we ought to do. Some of you might be hearing the Spirit saying, you need to give away this sin. You need to confess this and turn from this life of sin. Wherever you're at, be like the Bereans. Leave those things behind. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thanks so much for this message. Thank you for your word. It's a hard word, Lord. I'm convicted by it as a speaker. I need to study the word of God more diligently. I need to get organized in the way I study the word. I need to examine what is taught. And I need to be involved and engaged in your mission, Lord. The whole point of fighting these battles is for to add to your kingdom for your glory. Lord, for those of us who are struggling with sin, bondage, laziness, we confess that to you, Jesus. You know we're just dust. You know we're unable to do it without your help. That's why you died on the cross, because we couldn't help ourselves. And through your shed blood, we can have the remission of sins. And thank you that you rose again, giving us hope that the spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in us so we can live out the mission you have for us. Help us in our daily lives. Help us as a church to move forward and expand your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.